You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. In 2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City. Today, they're more than 20,000 strong. In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S., designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hey, welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Aaron Lammer from Longform, here with my ho- my co-host, <laughs> Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff from The Atavist. You're just full zoo crew today. You cannot stop it. We're your ho-hosts. We need little noise effects. Yeah, yeah. I need like a, like a, yeah, a little fart machine. This is, uh, we got a great show for you. It's far more sober than this introduction. Uh, I talked to Rachel Aviv from The New Yorker, uh, best known for piece she did this year. She's best known for her New Yorker pieces. This year, she had a piece on John Sexton, the dean of NYU, and a piece called Netherland, which is about homeless teenagers in New York City. Uh, definitely some of my favorite pieces of the year. Um, I think Netherland's from last year. Okay. <laughs> Within the last year. I like to stack my New Yorkers. Um, I think we got some sponsors this week. We do. We got two. The first is HostGator. HostGator.com. It's a way to get premium web hosting for not very much money. Uh, if you're looking to start an email newsletter, you're going to want to do it with Tiny Letter. It's a simple, powerful way to reach the people who care about what you have to say. Uh, it's from the good people at MailChimp. We thank them for their sponsorship. And here is Aaron with Rachel Aviv. Welcome, Rachel Aviv. Thank you for coming in. I have a lot of stories that I'm sort of interested in talking to you about. You been quite prolific over the last couple of years how many how many things do you have going at once usually just one usually just one yeah uh, um, occasionally one and a half but usually one what's your like what's your general timetable on like how how long you can spend on a story knowing that um i have spent a whole i think the longest i've spent is nine or ten months um shortest is maybe six weeks the the story that really um, I have a lot of questions about is um, Netherland, mm-hmm. which is a story you did about a homeless teenager in New York City. It's a, about the larger um, class of homeless teenagers in New York City, but it focuses on one specifically. And you spend a pretty long time with the subject of the story. How, how long between when you sort of met her and when the story came out elapsed? Um, I actually didn't meet her until three months into reporting the story. Oh, interesting. Um, But once I met her, I probably was with her for about five months. And so those three months before you met her, 
take me through sort of what that process is like for you. Um, Well, I had been given the assignment to write about the fact that there are a disproportionate number of gay and lesbian and transgender homeless youth in New York. Yeah. and the way that the it, the way that I was given the assignment was just I was sent a link to an NPR story, um, and the story. I feel be- like that's almost like a slightly insulting way to give someone an assignment <laughs> like this, but much longer. <laughs> right. Um, and the story basically said people when they come out um, are kicked out of home, so I called a lot of drop-in centers and shelters and asked the social workers there if they could put me in touch with their clients. Um, so for a while, I was talking to people that way, but it seemed like there was a bias and that I was constantly talking to the success story. Mm-hmm. Um, so then I decided I should just hang out myself at these soup kitchens and these drop centers and try to strike up conversations. Um, and that went on for a while. And I think... After those few months, I started to realize I kept thinking I hadn't found the right character, and I kept thinking I had to keep looking. And I think that part of the problem was that I was looking for someone whose narrative was the narrative of that that NPR story and the narrative of um, a lot of the advocacy literature, which does say you come out and you get kicked out. And I started to realize that it was much more complicated Sexual identity was one reason that people were homeless, but it often had to do with poverty, sexual abuse, physical abuse. It was just a much more complicated, messy thing. And I started to realize that the questions I'd been asking people were too focused on why they had left home. And I and I was kind of ignoring their responses when they delved into what happened once they were on the streets. And I think it was only at the point where I realized I'd been honing in on the wrong um, issue, maybe because I had been so swayed by that initial NPR narrative, um, that I started asking questions about like the communities that they formed once they were in New York and on the streets. And that, to me, became um, sort of motivating thing I wanted to understand was the nature of the community that they formed. So I'm interested. You use the word character, which mm-hmm. is interesting, because mm-hmm. um, when you take a real person and you put them into a story, they become a character. And you had this model of what was not the, the character you wanted in these sort of success stories that, mm-hmm. that somewhat ways felt false. But I wonder how you sort of balance wanting to get the sort of most archetypal average character mm-hmm. or the mo- and the fact that there are clearly lots of different kinds of experiences mm-hmm. and also you want to entertain a reader mm-hmm. with something that seems unique and has interesting angles to it. Um, yeah. I mean, I actually, the first person I wanted to write about, I think, was in many ways like the archetypal subject. And she just ditched me constantly. She would never show up to our meetings. And finally, I realized, like, that's great that she's archetypal subject, but, like, yeah. I can't write about her. She's just she's... not that into you. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think, yeah, I think that that is a balance. And one of the things that I was so drawn to about um, the woman that I ended up writing about, who I call Samantha in the piece, I mean, she had such a written record of her time on the streets, and she had kept these detailed journals. Um, She had all of her medical records, her shelter records. So that, to me, kind of trumped some of the other concerns because I would have had that extra layer of her immediate thoughts in the moment. It's funny because when people do these kind of things at, like, book length, like Mm -hmm. if they will write about, like, a high school, they'll be like, the jock and, like, the nerd, and, and you have this ability to sort of contrast characters. When you focus on a single character, 
you sort of forfeit that ability to show diversity through multiple people. Mm-hmm. So when you found these other characters other than ditching you, what, what was wrong with the other starts? Um, I don't think that anything was wrong with them, but it was so based on forming a connection. And there, for whatever reason, I really connected with Samantha. And she saw her, she had this amazing trait of seeing her life as a story. And that I think happens pretty rarely, but you'll sometimes be talking to someone and maybe they're a writer, maybe they've always wanted to write a book and it just kind of comes out of them. And so it wasn't even that she, that I was discarding other people. It was just that as soon as I talked to her, I couldn't really get her out of my mind. And I would just be walking down the street kind of daydreaming about her. And the fact that I was so drawn to her made me think she was the right person. And so you're three months in at the time you meet her. Mm-hmm. How long? How long did you intend to spend with her? I don't, I didn't have a set. I was almost, I did this article in The Strange where I started writing as I was still reporting. And as I would write, I would realize all these questions I had. And then I would come back to her with all of my questions. And um, it was a lot about reconstructing her earliest years um, when she was homeless. So I would go to the parks where she had been sleeping, but she was actually very sick at some points. So I would go to the parks, I would take pictures, I would come back to her and I would ask her if these pictures accurately represented the little um, area in the trees where she was sleeping and she'd tell me no and I'd go back. And so it was more like she was, I felt like we had both established and connected over the fact that there wasn't a lot of accurate representations of homelessness, particularly youth homelessness. And she really wanted to kind of set the record straight. And so in a way, I felt like we were working together um, and I could come to her with misperceptions and she wanted to correct them. So a lot of our dynamic um, unfolded that way. What was it about teenage homelessness that she felt like had been misrepresented or that, that she wanted to correct? I think that there is a, a significant difference between being a 21-year-old homeless person and being a 20 eight-year-old homeless person. And I think that they felt like there was this, um, they could kind of get sucked into this world of chronic homelessness, and they really wanted to distinguish themselves from that. Um, I also think it's just really easy to, I mean, she would be asking for money on the street, and people would say, well, you don't look homeless. I'm not going to give you money. Just this idea that you know what a homeless person looks like and acts like. And in that period before you met her and you were working on the story, you were I'm assuming meeting other people, but also researching this issue. Mm-hmm. So what, how do you construct sort of the other side of that coin, which is the established ideas about it and sort of uh, sociological research and that kind of stuff? What, what's your approach there? Just reading everything pretty much. Um, I think part of the reason that I later came back and reevaluated the focus of that piece was was partly because I had been reading so much and I started to think that I had come at the subject with a kind of simplified vision of what was going on. And once I had a better background knowledge, I was asking better questions and I could go back and do those interviews over again and have a better kind of conversation. And would you sort of present the research view of homeless teenagers to the, not just teenagers, I don't know why I keep saying homeless teenagers, homeless kids to Mm -hmm. the kids themselves? I mean, did you sort of beta Sometimes. test these assumptions against <laughs> Sometimes them? I did, especially issues relating to uh, prostitution and um, 
I, they would say trading sex. That was the phrase they used. But I would I would say, you know, it's often portrayed as if you are this kind of object or the victim. Did you feel that way? And, and often they really didn't. They felt like they were making a, a kind of choice that the word victim didn't really describe. So that was an area in which stuff that I was reading, they would kind of critique. And in this case, the, the subjects of the stories are people who are leading um, pretty vulnerable lives mm-hmm. and are potentially in danger or potentially hungry at any moments. Was this difficult to have this really close relationship with someone and have the potential to help them? Or how did you how did you interface with that? I did make sure that all of my, um, you know, normally if I was interviewing someone, we might get coffee. Coffee was completely extraneous to them. So we, I would definitely make sure that we were getting like lunch. Mm-hmm. Um, I tried to structure as many conversations as we could around meals, but beyond that. And would like, I don't know if the, the New Yorker has a policy on this. Like if, w- what would happen if you realize someone was going to sleep on the street? Are you allowed to, to buy them a hotel room? Are you allowed to help people in that way? Or does that violate reporting ethics? I, I would definitely have to ask. I would ask. I don't know. I, I think yeah. it probably violates. Yeah, it does. Yeah. Uh, um, what has your relationship with her been like since the story came out? Um, she has called me in a few times when she's had emergencies relating to almost getting evicted. And I've kind of, um, I think I kind of have become a little bit of a mentor. Like I will tell her about scholarships because she wants to apply to school now. Um, but it, it is hard transitioning out of this intensely intimate uh, relationship where, you know, every time she was sick, I would go to the hospital and we'd be talking. And now when she's sick, that's not necessary. I'm not, it it just feels like a, a I, I always, it's hard to navigate that slow retreat. Does this, when you, when you spend so long with an issue like this mm-hmm. um, and then you publish on it, does the the question of homelessness and society can continue to interest you? I mean, is this still something that stays in your mind or you're like, oh, God, I'm glad I got di- done with that uh, homelessness no, thing? No. <laughs> no, I always um, wish that I was – I always think I could just spend the rest of my career writing about that one thing. And have you – trying to think through your your stories, Have you haven't really repeated on a subject yet. I definitely circle around like – a set of issues. Yeah. Um, I guess not strictly repeating, but they often do involve um, kind of irrational thinking. And do you have like a, a beat at New York at the New Yorker? I mean, does this when a, what kind of a story do people think? Wow, um, this is a Aviv story. Definitely anything relating to psychosis or pathology. I think sort of maybe education a bit. Yeah. What? Yeah. Um, where does your interest in, in mental health come from? Um, you know, I started reading a few years ago. I was reading um, this book. Wait, should I go <laughs> way back? Yeah, no, I want like go back as far as you can. I'm interested because um, you started writing pretty young. Yeah. And so I'm guessing that before you were writing about these topics, just your sort of depth of knowledge about them. Like I was reading your story on um, uh, Hobson. Mm-hmm. And I was like, this is someone who, like, I was like, there is no way someone who has not read a significant amount of uh, Freud uh, even is vaguely. Like, that story was like all things that I have never concerned myself with. And I was like, this would take you like two years to research unless you had done a bunch of the research. Right, right. So wh- where does where does that interest start with you? 
Um, I think from growing up in a world in which, like, psychoanalysis was the ultimate truth, and it was such a truth that my parents thought I should um, have, like, heavy-duty psychoanalysis from first to fifth grade, which was an experience that I found, um, like, completely oppressive, but also... It was a strange kind of education in terms of a way of understanding human interactions, and it gave me a certain kind of language, and I think attentiveness to that those kinds of dynamics. Um, and then I think a few years after that experience ended, I was so confused that I had believed that these theories were the definitive way to understand the way that people interact. So I think that made me more interested in the way that certain social theories can gain traction and kind of structure institutions or um, decisions involving uh, guilt and innocence. And so that has been an interest that I imagine grew out of that time. And then I became particularly interested in psychosis um, when I was only a few years ago when I started reading a few books about um, one was Ellen Sachs. Uh, it was a memoir by Ellen Sachs. And the other was this book called Modernism and Madness by Lewis Sass. And he writes about how the experience of psychosis or schizophrenia is similar to um, kind of the ethos and of modernist literature. And for some reason, he just describes it in such detail. And I realized I had never really understood what it meant to have those experiences and that those kinds of experiences just never get articulated. And um, that became kind of motivating for me, that there was this range of human experience that is very common that just doesn't get put into language very much. Hey, it's your host, Aaron Lammer, uh, back with a quick word from our sponsor, HostGator. HostGator is the best place to get a website. They offer premium web hosting at low, low costs. So let's say you want to set up a website. First thing you're going to need is a domain. They've got great domain names that aren't long and unwieldy. They've got .NET domains powered by Versign. So then you need to get it set up. You can get 24-7, 365 day a year phone, chat, and email support. They'll help you move an existing domain if you've already got one. And once your site becomes wildly popular, they've got shared VPS and dedicated servers. So we'll be sure that your site stays online. Now, if you sign up with the code LONG, it's the code LONG, you'll get an extra 25% off and support this show. So thank you, HostGator. Here I am back with Rachel Aviv. So I'm, I'm interested in... You, you clearly have a deep interest in, in these topics as, as uh, research and as an academic pursuit. I, mm -hmm. I can just tell that you did much, much better in college than I did. Um, but when you translate them to a story, mm -hmm. like in, this, in Netherland and many of your stories, you seem very uh, acutely aware of the need to humanize these debates through a personal story that, that grips the reader. Mm-hmm. What is, what is sort of the like? How do you view the intersection of like a single personal story and research and policy and that kind of stuff? And how do you keep a balance between them in a story? I mean, my ideal story would be entirely told through one character's development. If mm -hmm. I could, um, so I guess the goal is always to find someone who the details in their life actually, without even having to do that much 
connecting and transitions actually suggest um, a direct intersection between these policies that are affecting them. But I, I think I always am looking for those two different strands. Um, and I mean, there are a lot of cases where you pick a character and you have to do some kind of like awkward, strained, connective work to get to the larger issues. Yeah. Um, so my ideal would be none of that. So you almost feel like when you have to cite research, that's 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 awkward in itself. If it was all contained within the narrative, it, it would that be would best. be ideal. But I do like citing. I mean, I do like that part too. Yeah. But I think as a reader, I somehow have this ideal of um, like Random Family by Adrienne Nicole LeBlanc. I was, I, I was about to ask about that. <laughs> I was actually about to. I was going to say, um, did you have anything when you were like? deep in the mania with um, following this teenager where you're like, I'm going to follow her for the next 20 years. <laughs> <laughs> I think when I read that book, that w- I felt that, that was what I wanted to do was just follow someone. Like that my ideal is like this seven up 49 up those kinds of series where you yeah. just stick with a person for their life i feel like now that seven up exists though you can't top that now right. like it, yeah. we're butting against the limits of a human lifetime yeah. in terms of tracking well, he could have stopped it yeah <laughs> it's over <laughs> um yeah random family i think it has been an ideal and maybe too much of an ideal because i have the same tendency to I think one of the things that Adrienne Nicola Bonk might have been a little bit criticized for was not just stepping out there and asserting what she saw as the bigger picture issues that might have been hampering this family. Um, and I, I think that is a struggle I have as well, like knowing when, like every time, for instance, my, my boyfriend's father is a academic and every time he reads an article of mine, he's like, I just don't understand why she didn't give recommendations. But I think <laughs> I think there is some middle ground where, it's you're, so undermining. <laughs> where you're suggesting um, your own take on the problem. And my tendency is to just let it all be spoken through the details. Do you have a take that you um, withhold or you sort of... I a, think I do. Yeah. yeah. Like uh, just, I mean, I don't want to ask you to, but like in the case of Netherland, like mm-hmm. if I were to, if, if you were to please your boyfriend's father, <laughs> what, like what would have you said? What would the final graph of Netherland be? Oh, like we need more funding for youth shelters and like uh-huh. the the age of youth shelters should be higher and you should be able to stay in the beds for longer. I mean, he's kind of really plotting points. I'm interested in, and maybe we can talk more about it later, but also like in the case of um, your most recent piece about um, NYU's president, John Sexton. Now, when I read Netherland, I was like, I'm pretty sure that you felt the way that you just described that like mm-hmm. these people need more services and mm-hmm. they need various things. But in the case of John Sexton, I was like, I can't tell whether she likes this guy. Like, I can't tell. Well, I'm glad you thought that. And I was like, and so in that case, I was like, wow, this really could have ended with a more, this story could have made John Sexton look like a moron mm-hmm. or it could have made him look like a genius. And it sort of walks a middle line. Mm-hmm. In that case, I mean, do you have to draft these to sort of get closer and closer to a neutrality in them? Unfortunately, that's the way it comes out is yeah. without... Um, with myself kind of disappearing in that way. Um, and I, I guess I really did feel conflicted about John Sexton, and so I guess that was expressed. Yeah. But not everyone has read it that way. Oh, really? What? How do people read it? I, they've read it both extremes. Like, he's oh, a complete tool, or like, why are you praising him? This is what's so uh, dangerous about journalism, is it's basically just a blank. Like, yeah. the, the closer you come to neutrality, the, the more it's a blank canvas for mm-hmm. everyone's preconceived yeah. notions of yeah. these issues. Um, you did a story for the New Yorker, I guess, two years ago or so. 
maybe not even, about um, people who are convicted of sex crimes related to uh, pedophilia mm-hmm. for sort of, I'm putting quote air quote marks around crimes, people who have been convicted without actually committing a sexual act, but because they've been soliciting online or perhaps are caught in a sort of a sting online related to it. And if I were to describe a unpopular character in America, um, probably the pedophile is the least popular um, mm-hmm. archetype out there. How do you approach a character like that? And in the same way we talked about picking the character in Netherland, how do mm-hmm. you approach, um, how do you pick a pedophile? Yeah. In this case, I actually had a list of 128 pedophiles that I could potentially choose because I was looking at a list of people who had been civilly committed in the federal program, and there were only 128. Where did, did they just were able to export that from an Excel document for you? Yes, it was a federal public defender who sent it to me. Oh, that's it. Um, and so the first person that I decided to write about, his case was appealing to me because it involved kind of the first case to try out this new diagnosis. Um, so I really liked the idea of writing about him. And I probably talked to him on the phone like 10 times. And I would ask him, um, why, when did you first notice that you were attracted to children? And, you know, what did you do with that experience? How did you deal with it? And he would just say, I don't know, I was insecure. And it kind of all of our conversations just died right there. And I wrote an entire first draft about him. And it was so dull. And I had not humanized him at all. Um, And so I did just start over and I started with someone new. And he, this guy, John, was was just very perplexed about his own desires, um, had really complicated justifications and explanations for how he had gotten involved in the world of child pornography. And to me, it seemed so linked to this kind of blurry area between real life in the internet and and the way that the internet can be so disinhibiting. So I was drawn to him because I thought that he was really self-reflective and self-conscious and kind of agonized by his desires. And to me, that was the only way that a reader could relate to him or could empathize with him. When you take on topics like pedophilia or homelessness, these are just generally things that people do not want to think about. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have techniques for sort of ratcheting people into a story and and, and capturing uh, them? I, I assume I, people like to think about these. things. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> you, we've all got our blinders. To me, when I when I like you know I flip open my New Yorker mm-hmm. and you know you got your table of contents there. I'm thinking, wow, because you are in some ways in competition for for people's attention with every mm-hmm. other story out there, and. You know, there's a certain kind of, I don't know, like a profile of like a dot-com guy where I'm like, oh, that sounds like Oh, see, like and fun. I wouldn't read that one. Yeah, you'd be like, fuck <laughs> <laughs> but, but you must have some perception that, that these are, are subjects that people are like, if not uninterested in, uncomfortable with. Yeah. I mean, it, it's true. It is a matter. I mean, like the kind of fiction I like to read is also the kind of fiction that would make me uncomfortable. Um, like what, what do you mean? Um, I like movies and fiction that, you leave and you feel uncomfortable and you feel implicated somehow. Mm. Um, so that might just be my projecting and assuming that other people are fine with reading about these kinds of things. When you say um, implicated, like how do you want the audience to one of your stories to feel implicated in it? When Like when maybe 
maybe some of my thoughts aren't as pure as I always... Maybe the, the spectrum between abnormal and normal is a little bit more blurry. Or maybe the spectrum between sane and insane. Like this sense that if I can relate to this person, maybe I'm not... Maybe I can question my own... There, there's something more complicated. I don't know. Yeah, no, no. That, yeah. that, that makes sense. Um, do you feel like in, in trying to sort of evoke that in the audience... Um, I noticed that some of your earlier stories, you appear in the stories and that I feel like that sort of tapered off a little Mm -hmm. bit in your later stories. Mm -hmm. How do you relate that to your putting yourself in a story? You know, I don't even know. I didn't even I wouldn't have known that observation. I think I only know that because I just read them all like in linear order. But like Um, you did that story in Harper's about um, the school missionaries and you say, hey, I'm like. I was raised a little secular Jewish. Right. I like I got some questions, and you yeah. use yourself as sort of a barometer, right? Mm-hmm. You 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 set yourself up to contrast with the missionaries. Um, you don't in Netherland say like I got a nice warm apartment to go home <laughs> to. Is that is was that a conscious choice to to remove yourself from these narratives? I just didn't think I had there was anything relevant about me in a in a piece like Netherland. Um, I did talk about myself a little bit when I wrote about Newtown because I felt like there was, because it was about the media and the way that the media was conceiving of, the way that journalists were conceiving of their role in covering that tragedy. Let's talk about that story a little bit, actually. So um, for people who haven't read it, um, I actually hadn't read it until this week. Tell me just, you know, a couple sentences about, about what the story is about. It is about the Newtown Bee, which is the local community paper, and how they were covering um, the shootings at Sandy Hook. And did you get assigned this story, or did you? Right. So the day after it happened, I was told to go to Sandy Hook and find a story. And I kept asking, like, what's what angle should I be looking for? And I was told, like, just hang out and figure it out. Um, what's it like descending on the scene of a tragedy I mean, as was, one of a like a that was what of it reporters? was. Yeah. I mean, how many how many reporters do you think got sent to Sandy Hook? Uh, I'd day. say the first four days were about 150 journalists there, at least. Did were you in the car on the way there, thinking of angles? I mean, it's um, a hard it's a hard question. Yeah, I showed up there, and I couldn't even. I mean, you couldn't even drive down the street; it was so packed. And I think for the first two days, I just felt incredibly self-loathing about what a journalist was doing in this situation. Were you all staying at the same hotel? I actually would just drive up oh, the okay. day and then drive up back home. Um, And I think because I felt like I had written a lot about mental illness and about maybe disaffected youth, that maybe I was there because that I had been assigned the story because I should be writing about Adam Lanza. And as I started to think about it, I became more uncomfortable with that idea, especially because there are so many studies that show the way in which media coverage kind of can spawn these copycat crimes. So I knew I didn't want to do that, and I just didn't even know what I was doing kind of doing physically like I would just be walking down the streets trying to figure that out Um, and I think because of that discomfort I started thinking about what the local reporters were doing and I connected with the reporters based on that because they were so frustrated by the media's invasion um, of their town and they felt like everyone was drawing on the tragedy and what they were trying to do was make the town cohere again Um, But I felt that it was relevant in that case to bring myself in because one of the reporters had a lot of hostility towards me. And I think he kind of saw me as a proxy for all of the media there and didn't really want me in the office. And so I included some of those interactions because I thought um, that they were very tense and that the issues 
that made them tense were, were bigger than us. Were, did anyone else try and cover the, the bee? <laughs> Surprisingly, no. Okay. Were you like constantly like, you know, driving circles around the block before you pulled up? Because I'm thinking if this many reporters came, some people, like when they were drawing straws, did not get an angle. Um, I, the problem was they all left after 10 days. So right. I, once, I, I didn't even think about the Newtown Bee until I came back after New Year's. So that was two weeks later. And then I was one of maybe 20 as opposed to 150. And once you started working on, on that mm-hmm. sort of thread, um, did you when you just, when you pick up a story like that? Do you know like this story is going to be about the Newtown B, or are you thinking I need like three or four things that are going to all one of these will work out? I mean, do you have like a backup plan if they actually I say know. like please leave the premises? We do not want you to be at the Newtown oh, well, B. Well, the only reason I decided to do it is because I had a really good conversation with the editor, and I really that there was a lot of issues that he raised that I kept thinking about. Um, so I knew that he would be receptive enough. Mm -hmm. And no, I didn't have a backup plan. But I did think that I would spend months and months following the Newtown Bee and like describe how the town moved on. And my editor said, like, there's no need to do that. You can just wrap things up. Please come home. Well, that's sort of an interesting springboard to talk about. Before you were working for The New Yorker, um, I know that you had written for Harper's and Mm -hmm. I think N plus one maybe. Online. Online. Yeah. There's no distinctions here. We're, we're, it's, a, it's a podcast. It's all the same. Um, so how did how did you sort of what what was your first writing gig? Right after college, I worked for the Village Voice. Village Voice. Uh-huh. And I wrote a lot of book reviews. I, I had to stop there. I was about to say the defunct Village Voice, and I was uh, like, oh, yeah. no, not quite. Well, yeah. So I was there as a, as it was purchased by the New Times, and everyone was fired or resigned. Um, but I during that time, I wrote a lot of book reviews, and then the editor of the book's pages also edited The Believer, Ed Park. So I ended up writing for The Believer, and that was kind of how I started writing at a longer length. Were you writing when you were in college? Yeah, I took writing classes. I took fic- I took a lot of fiction classes in college. What At what point did you say, fiction is not my direction and I, I want to report? I mean, I found plot very difficult. Oh, Creating your own world, deciding the turns to take. I mean, my my plots would be just totally bizarre. Like every turn that could be taken would be taken. And in terms of developing that plot-based non-fictional voice, was mm-hmm. that a struggle or did it come naturally once you started focusing on real people? That was more natural. Yeah. That didn't that felt and I've always really liked that kind of um I mean in I've always really liked the form of even like a case study and mm-hmm. I think that sometimes that is an ideal in a way when I'm writing a story um but no it came nonfiction did come much more naturally. were there were there writers in terms of writing like a case study like that did you model your work after people or try and sort of template it out I mean even just any case study I think it's I just it's like a very it reads like a mystery in a way, and I like stories like that where the character is constantly revealing herself, and um, it can be very suspenseful in that way. So, no, but I do love Jana Malcolm, who just doesn't write case studies, but is very attentive to that kind of thinking. And does that sort of attract you to legal cases because they follow the that sort of trial trajectory? I do like that, and also just because legal cases come with reams of material, which is always nice, the documentation. I'm imagining your house, and I'm imagining that you just have giant stacks of paper I everywhere. I do, I do, yeah. You're not, you're not a, you haven't moved to the e-reader. 
I don't even know what an e-reader is. Oh, like a Kindle or an oh, no. iPad. <laughs> <laughs> I, think that, I think that question was thoroughly answered there. Um, so you, you got this job out, out of college, and you did go to journalism school or no, graduate I, school in I writing? No, I went to nonfiction MFA. Nonfiction yeah. MFA, sorry. No. Apol- <laughs> apologies to anyone offended by that mistake. Um, what is the difference between a nonfiction MFA and journalism school? Um, I think journalism is a v- is much more based on reporting, and and nonfiction is modeled very similarly off of fiction. Um, mm-hmm. I think that maybe that that is that was a little difficult because the rhythm of nonfiction writing, if you're going to be reporting, requires is not the same as like every two weeks you turn in an installment. And I think that was hard because I would have to like stockpile pieces so that I could fit onto that schedule. And what were you thinking you were going to do with that nonfiction MFA? Yeah, it wasn't a very well thought out. Wasn't well. <laughs> what, what do they um, What do they teach at the nonfiction MFA? I always i I think a lot of people who listen to the show mm-hmm. are um, people who are or are considering um, enrolling in education in these fields, and okay. I always feel like there's a, a worthwhile to sort of debunk. Just like okay. what 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 um what was the most important stuff you picked up in school? In a way, I think the most important thing was not writing for the air, um, like. It is hard. It's a strange thing to be writing nonfiction and to be, and because it's a social process, because you're asking people to give you their time and their energy, to say that I'm just like practicing is odd. And so to be like I'm a student and I'm in school um, gives you a sense that you're doing something um, real. But to me, I think that that was maybe the most important thing. I'd, it's hard to extract a lesson I learned in school. Mm. And when did you, so after getting out of college, when did you start taking on these more sort of featurey long pieces? I think slowly with The Believer. The first assignment I was given was by my editor, and it was to write about books with fat heroes, which I have no idea why I, like I had nothing really invested in that subject to it's say. It's funny because we were talking about the New Yorker table of contents and uh-huh. whether you pick it or not. I got the believer at that point. And I was like, oh, fat character. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I was like, you're, you're right. You're right in my sweet spot here. <laughs> um, so that was my first long piece. And I think I did become aware that like, that's not necessarily the kind of writing I want to do where you're juggling like 20 novels and you're trying to come up. That was a little bit more academic. Yeah. Um, and I think I just kept realizing that, like, I had control over what I was writing about for a while. It seemed like such a miracle to even come up with something that constituted a story that whether it was about, like, electronics or traffic or whatever, I would just go for it. And I started to realize that it made more sense to do things that I was – the right things that I would actually want to read about. So, yeah, that's that's an interesting topic because I think a lot of people um, – think of the writer as sort of someone who gets a stroke of inspiration. And, and what it really comes down to for a lot of people is you're picking some stories yourself and having some picked for you. Mm-hmm. When you started having stories assigned to you, or at mm-hmm. least nudged in your direction, what kind of stories were you getting assigned that you wouldn't normally have taken on, sort of? What, what was the challenge of moving to uh, assignments? Um I almost have to go through this process where I convince myself that, like, I am the right person to be writing this, that I have a claim on this subject. I am someone. 
<laughs> like I have to kind of tell a little story to myself about why I've always been interested in this and like, oh, this relates to that other interest I have. Otherwise, I don't feel uh, like I have the authority. And I think that that is a process where I like reinvent the subject in my own terms and uh, then feel it, like it's mine. It's interesting how uh, in your stories, now that I know a little bit more about you, I find that you have been able to find overlaps in the subject's personality with sort of your own uh, uh-huh. in a way. Like in the Sexton piece, you talk about how he had this mentor mm-hmm. um, who um, led this kind of like super intense uh, high school um, where where he would have kids over and they would sort of debate like the classics and everything. And, and that seems like almost like a a place where you and Sexton connected. Is that something you try and you try and sort of find similarities between yourself and a subject? I don't know why I thought that overlapped with your personality. <laughs> I started saying that. I was like, wait, did she say anything about that? I don't remember. Um, Sorry. I apologize for totally the truth misrepresenting. Is, I think if anything, I asked Sexton more questions about his wife. You know, that, yeah. that did interest me because I thought he was having, I thought that that was an incredibly defining moment for him. And I really wanted to know how that affected his leadership style. So that might have been a yeah. way in which my normal curiosities slightly shifted the emphasis. So like, let's talk about it in the the context of the NYU piece. You're like, okay, I got this piece. I'm totally, totally into this. This is totally my perfect piece. (laughs) What, what convinced you? Where did you, where did you find the threads where that passed your, your curiosity? Well, that was a hard one. That, that I'm not even sure. I I mean, I think I liked the idea of someone writing about someone who felt maligned and who felt um, hated and what he dealt, what he did with that, and I also thought he was a kind of, he had had a very strange life. Like he was an unlikely um, president, and I think he was intensely personal, and that was that, that's probably part of his success is that he relates to people in this extremely intimate way. Um, so just the fact that we were able to have those kinds of conversations was enough for me to feel like it made sense to be writing about him. He has this really intense personality type that I don't really know what you there's a word for it in English but manic (laughs) manic's one of them but he's also full of shit and totally sincere at the same time Um, and that's a very like that's a almost like a con artist kind of thing where there's a point you sort of capture and where there's a a meeting of I think a board meeting and someone says oh we thought he was just playing us like that's it like that's this isn't like an act this is how he really is right and yeah. when you find a person like that, I mean, were you thinking at some point I'm going to peel back a new layer of John Sexton? Or at what point did you sort of realize this act is the person? It may have been talking to his friends. It may have been when we went to Abu Dhabi and he just didn't even change for four days. Not change. Like he he was just the same John Sexton. I mean, in a way, he, while being a complicated person, he also is so constant, such a He's the same person every day, it seems. Um, so I think the fact that he had an unusual, his as a person, he was an unusual person to figure out, that appealed to me. That The point where you went to Abu Dhabi with him in that story was the mm-hmm. first time in reading your stories where you were doing something that sounded like fun. Do you do you have fun like when you is that fun to go to uh, Abu Dhabi with John Sexton? I was dreading it. I, oh really? Yeah. Why? Um, you know, five days straight with an seventy-year-old just hanging out all the time. I mean, I don't think I would do it with my grandfather, but we were doing it. Um, 
but but yeah, it actually was an amazing experience. I would never have gone there otherwise. But no, that that wasn't. I wouldn't call that fun. I mean, does that is that something that affects your reporting? Like, do you choose things that you would sort of enjoy doing, or do you... no, I don't. And um, you're usually, you're like at a prison or a mental hospital. So. Yeah, I would. I, I've never. No, I've never done that. Um, how like how much of your life is taken up with with working on these stories? It's a seven day a week kind of thing. Well, there's no real distinction between a week and a weekend. Um, yeah, it's hard. I mean, there are a lot of gaps, too. Um, you know, there's a lot of waiting for things to happen, which sometimes makes me feel uncomfortable. Like everyone else just went to work and is having this incredible feeling of productivity, and I'm here waiting for someone to call me back. Um, or I'm here looking online at blogs, hoping to find an idea. So I think um, it does – it is – something I'm thinking about all the time, but one of the frustrating things is that you can't always be kind of like moving forward at a steady pace. Where do you look for ideas? I look through journals. I look through, um, like, I'll look at scholars' Twitter pages. I think the best ideas come from kind of having an idea that I want to write about, like I want to write about foster care, and then you figure out who, how to tell that story. I think I've realized recently that just like opening up the internet and, and hoping to come across an idea doesn't really work. Do you have like secret places that you find ideas that you don't tell other people? No, about? I wish I did. Because no. I feel like people, I've had people on the show who are involved in like like business reporters who are mm-hmm. just like RSS maniacs. Oh, they have like uh-huh. local, you know, like local Alaska news RSS uh-huh. going and they're waiting for like a crazy story or people who are crime reporters. Um, but when you're, you know, it's unlikely that you're going to find um, a great like connection with a homeless teenager through RSS. So I mean That's true. You're not going to find that on the internet. I think that is an issue too. It's almost like I um, need to find the issue and then just like go outside. Where do you where do you work out of? I sit on the floor um, with my computer. Uh, I mean I, I usually sit at the desk but then halfway through I'm like on the couch or on the floor or whatever. I mean have you had to sort of I have terrible discipline so I'm do you have you had to develop a discipline for yourself to be no, able to do these things? That is something. Like usually, I just wake up and start working, and that is okay. That that seems to be working out for you. <laughs> what What do you want to do from here? Um, does a book interest you? It does. Yeah. Have you made any steps in that direction? Um, some very small steps. Small yeah. steps. <laughs> have Have any of the stories you've done? Have you wanted to come back to them? I think that's a problem that I'm always like. Every time I'm writing a story, I think, oh, I could just expand this like 200 pages, um, and then I get a few months out of it, and I lose. I don't know. Almost every story feels open to me. Like I want to go back a little bit. Are there topics that you'd like to write about that you haven't haven't gotten to yet? Yeah, I hope so. I mean, there's yeah. I mean, I, I think about, like, it's interesting you cited Janet Malcolm because mm-hmm. I feel like there has been an evolution in her work if you look at from, like, the 80s to now. Fisher. Yeah, I mean, she's, <laughs> she went through a sort of, like, a like a, a crime phase, and yeah. she, then she started profiling a lot of, like, artists and sort of thinkers. Mm-hmm. And do you, is there, like, a is there like a new wrinkle that you want to uncover in terms of what you, you write about? Yeah, and I think that's... Even with Janet Milk, I mean, that's something I think about a lot is that if you do start writing about the same types of subjects, how many ideas does one person get to have? I think you do have to kind of shift the focus so that you don't keep coming up with the same theories and the same observations. Um, So I have been trying to 
make sure that I'm not like stuck in this little world of mental health. Well, it's interesting because those stories, if I were to sort of cluster, you have the story about um, juvenile life without parole and you have this pedophilia story and you have this homelessness story and they're these intractable social issues that Mm -hmm. most people just don't even want to talk about because it's Mm -hmm. it's just like it's too fucked up. Mm -hmm. And now that you've written them and spent time with them, um, I know that to your um, boyfriend's father's... uh, (laughs) Displeasure, you did not give any prescriptive sort of solutions to them. But I, I'm actually more interested just in what the experience of, of getting really close to something and realizing that it's like really screwed up and, and the screwed up in this goes really deep, w- yeah. what that does to you as a writer. I think, I mean, I kind of love, I've had it a few times where you're writing and you feel like this very visceral anger. Um, that I really like because in the idea that you could be writing something that will make other people angry in the same way. Um, sometimes I think that there's like a lesser thing, which is not so much like changing policy, but maybe changing the way people see a particular subgroup of people in the same way that when I read Adrian Nicole LeBlanc's Random Family, like it did kind of change the way that I saw people on the subway. And I don't know what that's worth as far as policy changes, but that is like something real. And so um, that's something that I that I hope writing can do. Have you ever thought about like um, jumping the fence and change? I mean, we had like um, Patrick Radden Keefe was on the show mm-hmm. and he talked about how he like worked for a year for this like governmental agency because he start, knew so much about cartel money laundering. He was actually became an expert yeah. in the topic. Um, yeah. Have you ever thought of becoming an advocate yeah, or working not in an a non Like context? if I'm writing about the criminal justice system, I think like I wish I were a lawyer. If I'm writing about psychiatry, I wish I were a psychiatrist. I mean, I have often filled out like half of my application to get a PhD in clinical psychology. So that is one area where I'm like constantly on the verge of jumping the fence. Um, but even when I wrote about religion, I thought I wanted to like become a priest, basically. So it, it just happens that the person with more expertise in that field suddenly seems like they have the ideal job where they cannot just describe a problem, but do something about it. Um, well, I think that's about all, all I've got for you. Do you have anything else you want to get out there? No. Well, thank you very much for thank coming you. in. Um, this is a great conversation, and I appreciate um, we've had to reschedule you a few times, and uh, you stuck with it. So thank you. Um, Rachel Aviv, all these stories that we talked about are going to be in the show notes. Um, if you want to catch her new work as soon as it comes out, get a subscription to The New Yorker. Thanks to my co-hosts, Evan Ratliff and Max Linsky. Thanks to our editor, Lauren Kirchner, our intern, Gavin Jenkins. If you like this show, maybe go rate it on iTunes. If you want to check out something from The Atavist, they've got a new story called Murder on the Mekong out. Uh, Longform's got great picks every day of the week at longform.org. We'll see you back here next week. Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, (laughs) but they choose to do it. In the new docuseries, Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. 
Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.